What I'm going to share with you this morning, if you want to go ahead and turn, beginning in Luke 24, familiar passages to most of you, a narrative passage, but it's going to serve as a good jumping off point for us this morning for what I want to share with you. We know this passage uh, by name is Christ on the road to Emmaus and what happens there that Luke has recorded in the word here we want to look at just to get really to a particular verse. So let's go ahead and begin in Luke chapter 24 beginning with verse 13. And behold, two men, uh, two of them rather, were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. And one of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Israel and are unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus of Nazareth who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, and in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priest and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. And indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision, a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scripture. What a sight that must have been. What an experience that must have been. As we consider this passage, it's been three days since the crucifixion of Jesus. Chapter 24 begins with Luke's resurrection account. Luke quickly moves forward and begins laying out the story we know as Christ on the road to Emmaus here. Emmaus, or otherwise rather, might be insignificant. You're not going to find much about Emmaus anywhere. We really don't know where it was. You know, verse 13 just says that it was seven miles north of Jerusalem there. Luke says that a man named Cleopas and another man, his traveling buddy, were going down the road, and then Jesus comes up upon them. They're talking about the events that had taken place. And no doubt these included uh, Jesus' triumphal entry, into Jerusalem, the cleansing of the temple perhaps, the cursing of the fig tree, certainly his arrest and the mob and all of their accusations, the trials, 
the scourging, the horrible, horrible scourging that took place of our Lord, and then His crucifixion, and then, of course, the resurrection. The resurrection. And these two men would have recognized Jesus. They would have recognized Him, but it says that they weren't allowed to do that. And you might say, well, why was that? My study indicated that it might be because Christ Himself was demonstrating a particular principle that the power lies in the explanation, if you will, of biblical truth, not in the person doing the explaining. In fact, this whole thing is about the Word of God. It's about the Old Testament and what the Old Testament says about the resurrected Lord, who Messiah would be. This is what Jesus wants to impress upon the hearts and minds of these two. So the rest of the narrative recounts the current events to include the women who went early to the tomb and the disappointment and confusion of Cleopas and his travel companion. For they were just like everybody else who were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for something else. They were looking, as you know, for someone to come in and to be a little more political and to focus a little more on the people of Israel in particular and to do all that they had expected Messiah to do. And that wasn't the way it was to go down. They weren't familiar. They didn't understand the suffering and so forth. They didn't understand his passion. So Christ is going to teach them. His words in verse 25 indicate that the two men had exposure to the teaching of the prophets. Because he judges their response to the truth. And he says that it's foolish. They've been foolish. And they've been slow of heart. And these words literally mean it's, it's unintelligent, it's unwise. They're not learning from what they do have, what they do know. They're not able to put it together. They're slow or dull of hearing. And it's the same today because there are other forces out there that want to keep you from understanding the Word of God. It wants to keep you from taking that Word down into your heart and being changed by it. They're out there. And they will persist. They will persist. And he's talking specifically here when he talks about, he uses the word believe, he's talking about having faith in a particular person. Believing in a person. So Jesus then gives some clarification in verse 26. He does that by a rhetorical question in which the answer points to the necessity, the absolute necessity of Jesus' sufferings and the realization of his ultimate glory, and then that gets us up to what I'm calling today our springboard or our jumping off point for everything else that I'm going to share with you today, because it says, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Now, I understand that that seven-mile stretch there probably would take maybe two and a half hours to walk at a Middle Eastern pace, whatever that is. We don't really know, and we don't really know where Jesus popped up on the road. We don't know if that was just right out of Jerusalem or whatever, but we know he had a good, good amount of time, a good bit of time to do just what he says here, beginning at Moses, to explain all that the prophets have said regarding himself out of the scriptures. Wow. So, granted, after this encounter with Jesus, these two are not going to have an excuse, are they? 
they're not going to have an excuse. To have the Lord Himself to explain to them the Scripture, the Old Testament Scriptures and what they say about Him. And no doubt the impact, the right impact that that's supposed to have on their heart and how their faith is to be increased. We don't know where He started. I guess He started, since He's talking about Moses in Genesis, He could have started in chapter 1, verse 26, where it simply says, Let us make man in our image. And you have a definite image of the Trinity there, maybe taking him all the way through Malachi where it talks about John the Baptist coming and announcing the Messiah and everything in between. And without a doubt, only a a preacher, the most perfect preacher who ever lived, who ever walked, every word, every sentence, every pause, every emphasis was perfect and it was dead on. Dead on the Word of God. Reminds me of Luke chapter 4 where that happened again in Jesus' hometown. You got the perfect preacher up there preaching the perfect Word, hitting it, hitting every syllable, everything just perfect. And what was their response? Well, we need to take him out. We need to take him up on a hill and throw him off and stone him to death. There's always that other force out there. But here, the Word of God had already gotten into these guys' hearts, and they were listening. And we'll have evidence of that when we go back to these Scriptures when I finish up here. So what did Jesus tell these two? What was His witness of Scripture here, if you will? Now, you may be saying, well, Mike, are you going to preach on all that today? No. And those of you who noticed my large packet here, it's because I had to increase the size of the font. Okay? (laughs) That's the only thing. So stay with me. As I said, it's a bit of a macro. Scripture will do its work on you here if you'll let it. I'm saying, first of all, we need to look at the New Testament, what I'm calling the recollection of Old Testament Jesus. The New Testament's recollection of Old Testament Jesus. Just another word of saying that Christ and others, New Testament writers, often, of course, refer to Christ in the Old Testament. And the first one that came to my mind as I was looking at this, of course, is Matthew 17, where we look at the transfiguration And it says, and behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking about Peter, James, and John. Jesus had taken them with him. He appeared to them, talking with them. And you got a Moses and Elijah who represent the law and the prophets. They're both there. And the law and prophets both foretell of Jesus' death and resurrection of the Messiah. So that's what you have here. What a testimony. What an affirmation of who Christ is. And if you go to Luke 9.31, you'll see that they were actually talking about Christ's death and His departure, completing the work that God had Him to do. And I'll move on fastly here. We can go to Luke chapter 16, and you have the account of the rich man and Lazarus. And you know the story without me reading through all of it. The rich man dies and finds himself in hell. Lazarus, now this is not... Mary and Martha's Lazarus, of course. This is Lazarus the beggar. Dies. He's in the bosom of Abraham. He's in a place of comfort. And that rich man looks over and sees Lazarus in that place of comfort. Wants him to come over, cool his parched tongue. He says, I'm tormented in this flame. Abraham says, he can't come. You're getting what you deserve. He's getting what's been laid up for him. He said, yeah, but I've got five brothers. And I don't want them to come to this awful place. Send him back. And let them know about this place. 
And listen to the response. Abraham says that they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Oh, no, he says, no, but look, and this is the way people think, is it not? If somebody were to come back from the dead, then they would believe. And we know that's not true from Scripture, correct? But he's desperate. He doesn't want them to come to this place. And listen to this response, chapter 16, verse 31 of Luke. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. It's not about an obvious miracle. It's not about something that can take you so far beyond what your intellect is already telling you is acceptable. It's not about any of that. It's about the power of the Word of God to change a heart. That's what it's about. And anything, any experience apart from that is false. It's a false experience. The only thing that will change a person for all time and eternity is the Word of God. That was true in the Old Testament. That's true now. And then John in chapter 5, verse 45 and 46, he said, look, he's talking to a group. Moses wrote of me. And this is where Jesus talks about the witness of the Word and the witness of the Father, the witness of John the Baptist, and even his miracles but he says, do not think that I, ha- that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Why? If you believe Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? We have so much less of an excuse nowadays. Our lives should be continually changed, even within the church, because of the word that we hear. We're obligated to take it in and to allow it to do its work in our heart. Acts chapter 2, Peter quotes David from Psalm 16. David simply says, You will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. He's talking about Christ. And then, of course, in Acts 8, you've got Luke, who records from Isaiah 53, where you've got Philip preaching to the Ethiopian eunuch, and it says he was specifically reading from Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 8, and we're going to get to that great, great chapter before I get through today, I trust. But he says plainly in chapter 8, verse 35, that Philip opened his mouth, and he, beginning from that point, from this scripture, that he preached Jesus to this man. He told him what the scriptures have said about Jesus. And you know the story. Here's water. What prohibits me from being baptized? If you believe with all of your heart, he said, not just your head, but if you believe with all of your heart, then you can. You can do that. You can be baptized. Romans 9, 33, Paul quotes from Isaiah also, chapter 28. He refers to him as that great stone of stumbling. He says, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. And many stumble at the Messiah, the person of Christ, the truth of his word. And there are many other places, I'm sure, in the New Testament, but we have those to whet our appetite a little bit. 
So secondly, we can move to the Old Testament revelation of the coming Jesus. The Old Testament revelation of the coming Jesus. And we'll divide this one up into a couple of parts. The material that I was studying in preparation uh, put a good deal of emphasis on the symbolism that's involved in the Old Testament. So we'll look at that first off and let that teach us this morning. Of course, Genesis chapter 6. It's the story of Noah and the ark, and without reading all the verses for time's sake, and I'm doing pretty good here, without reading all of that, it's simply a reference to the ark, that great ark that was prepared, and the souls that were saved. And God shut that door. He shut the door of that ark. Christ is that true ark. It's a picture of Him as the true ark where we go, and we're kept safe from the judgment of God, simply by being obedient to Him. It's His desire today that all men everywhere should repent. That's His desire. And symbolically, we can also enter that ark today. Genesis chapter 22, you know the story. Abraham taking his son, his only son Isaac, up. God will provide for himself a lamb, the scriptures tell us there, for the burnt offering, my son. That's what he told him. Dad, we've got everything. Where, where, what are we going to sacrifice? What fate that must have taken. And Christ is that lamb. He's that lamb that was offered in substitute for you and I. And the Old Testament scriptures proclaim that time and time again. Exodus chapter 12 where Moses gives direction over the Passover lamb. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. From verse 13 of chapter 12. Jesus again, he's that Passover lamb declared in the Old Testament. He's spotless. He has no blemish. He's everything And the only thing that God will accept in payment for mine and your sin and for the sin of every person who will ever believe in Him. He is our Passover Lamb. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And there are others, Exodus chapter 16 where he talks about the bread of heaven falling, the manna, if you will. And Christ is that manna. He says plainly in John 6, 35, one of the great I am statements, he says, I am the bread of life. He's there to fulfill every spiritual need that we have. It's the same with the rock and striking the rock and the water coming out. Jesus is the source of every spiritual provision that we could possibly ask for or need in our life. Exodus 17. And we see that. We see this symbolism throughout. And then the one I love particularly, Numbers chapter 21, where the people have been complaining against God, complaining about Moses. I mean, at some point you think, well, what's it going to (laughs) take? What's it going to take? You've seen so much, and yet you don't believe. God judges them with fiery serpents, biting them out in the wilderness. And Numbers 21, 8 and 9, he says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. 
And Moses made a bronze serpent, and he set it on a standard, on a pole, and it came about that if a serpent bit a man, then he looked to the bronze serpent, and he lived. The Lord would say later, he would talk about himself being lifted up. God judges the people here, and he inflicted pain in their life. Because they were obstinate, they were stubborn, they were unbelieving. And I can ask you this morning, does he still do that today? We're responsive, are we not? To the pain, the difficulty that comes into our life. And as Christians, we know and we see it as God's judgment, God's hand in our life, God's correction, if you will. We respond to it accordingly. John chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So it particularly points to Him. Hebrews would tell us that we're to look unto Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Looking to Him in faith. You say, can it be that simple? If it's from the heart and not just the head, if it's our true intent and not just some desperate attempt to be forgiven and then go on our way in our sin and continue to embrace the world and everything that the world provides for us, you know, just to get this off of my back right now so that I can move along in my life. No, it's not that. It's something much deeper when we come to Him for forgiveness of our sins. We see it with Jonah, three days and three nights from Jonah chapter 1. Three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. Christ would say in Matthew 12, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the monster, the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. A beautiful picture, a prophetic picture of the Lord's resurrection from the dead. Daniel chapter 2 is preaching. He talks about a cut stone. He's been talking about this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had had of this, this single great statue. And he talks about a portion there that it was a stone that was cut without hands. It was cut without human hands. And it will destroy, he says, the empire of the Antichrist at the second coming. That stone that that was cut without human hands is Jesus the Christ. It's the Messiah. He's all throughout the Old Testament. You can't go very far without getting into Isaiah. I mean, way up to here. In Isaiah in chapter 11, verses 1 through 5, bear with me as I read. Listen, listen to this. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. This is our Christ. The Spirit of counsel and strength. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make decisions by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor." And decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins. And faithfulness the belt about his waist. Jesus, our Christ, is the shoot. 
He's the shoot from the stem of Jesse, David's father. And he's the branch from his roots. He's the long-awaited son of David. The long-awaited Messiah. And then there are multitudes of predictions throughout. Genesis 3.15, where it talks about, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between you and your seed. And he, he's talking about Jesus, shall bruise your bruise you on the head, and you, talking about Satan, shall bruise him on the heel. This is often referred to as the, the first gospel, or at least a, a reference to the gospel. Right there in Genesis chapter 3, talking about, in specific detail, yet, yet just a few words, about how sin is to be defeated through the work of Christ. In Deuteronomy 18.18, Moses had told the people about a prophet to come, and God said, I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among the brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Specifically, speaking of the Messiah. Daniel chapter 7, I looked, or I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed." Daniel refers to the Son of Man. And you know, this was Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. In fact, I understand from what I studied that it's used of him, used of Jesus over 80 times in the Gospels. I can't be talking about anybody else but our Messiah, Jesus the Christ. And then we know the Scripture from Isaiah 7 Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son. And she will call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, and Matthew tells us in chapter 2 there, verse 23, that that means God with us. And when I typed all this out, I left out something that I wanted to share. So I'm going to go back because you just can't hardly, to me, read that portion of Scripture without going to chapter 9 and finding out a little more detail about this child who was to be born to a virgin. In verse 6 there of chapter 9, For behold, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And he adds that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. We know who's going to be born. Micah in chapter 5 tells us where he's going to be born. In Bethlehem. Ephrathah, which is to distinguish it from another Bethlehem. Some of you may not have known that there was more than one Bethlehem, than one in Galilee, not that one, but this one. 
Because he says, from you, or from, from you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. And his goings forth are from long ago, long time determined, before time. Determined from long ago, from the days of eternity, he says. And we could go on and we could even look at scriptures in Malachi at the end of the Old Testament, where it talks about the one who was to come. As Christ would say, in the spirit and power of Elijah, we know that was John the Baptist who would come proclaiming a time of repentance and preparation for the coming of the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. And you can read it in Malachi chapter 3 and in chapter 4. Verse 6 says that he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And John preached and preparations were made for the coming Messiah. And he came. Well, let's go on up and look at Isaiah, specifically at chapter 53. And granted, we're, we're flying across the top of this, but this is so rich. I mean, if this doesn't drive you to, to go home and to take your Bible and to dig into this, as we should do, then I don't know. We're talking about the regret and repentance of Israel as it's shown to us in Isaiah chapter 53, because that's what this is. This is a picture of Israel looking back on its failure to embrace their Messiah. It's a picture of that in Isaiah 53. It's a huge lament, if you will, because there's coming a day when they're going to do that. They're going to realize there's a day out there. Paul tells us about it in Romans chapter 11. They're going to realize that for a host of reasons, and some of them are listed in Isaiah 53, That they have spurned their Messiah. And what's amazing is this was written around 700 years before Christ's birth. And no sane man can read this and say that it's talking about anybody else. And the religious Jewish community knows that because they don't even read this. They don't have an answer for this, I understand. They They don't talk about this. If it's ever mentioned, it's for the purpose of debunking it, I understand. Written over 700 years, and there's no way it could be talking about anyone but Jesus Christ. Nobody fulfilled these things. Somebody somewhere, and I don't have the numbers, but they put the numbers on this and talked about what were the odds, if you will, of all of this pertaining to somebody else in one particular lifetime, and it's astronomical. And yet we see it all in the life of Christ as we read through Isaiah 53, we often go back before jumping into that 53rd chapter and look just a moment at chapter 52 because he says something that kind of prepares us for what's coming, Isaiah does. He makes reference to him of Jesus and he says that his appearance was marred and more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. And he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will will shut their mouth on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will 
understand. Oh, they heard the words. They heard the prophets. But Jesus says, well, you just killed the prophets. That's what you did. You did not hear with your heart. You only heard with your head. And you wouldn't put away the things of tradition and the things of the world because you wanted that more than you wanted God. And the same dynamic rules today. What's in competition in our life for what God wants to do? This, this 53rd, it's the most clear, it's the most profound declaration really of the gospel itself. You won't find anything else that speaks as specifically as Isaiah 53 does about the all-sufficient, sacrificial, substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. They're looking back on it in lament is the way Isaiah is putting it forward. It will be their future confession. And you say, well, what does that have to do with us today? Well, it's the same for us because we also have rejected him. We all who were born in our sin. We all who have heard the word of God and can testify today that at some point it touched our heart. It was calling us away from the world, but we chose the world instead. And we came up with all sorts of kinds of excuses not to follow Christ, not to deal with what the Holy Spirit and the word of God was doing in our heart. We will give an account of that. You will give an account of that. If there's no change in your heart. Verse 50 or chapter 53. Who has believed our message, he says. Paul would quote this again in Romans 10. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And the implied answer is none. Nobody. Maybe a handful. But nobody. Nobody has believed it. My mind goes to Matthew chapter 7, which tells us that there's a wide, wide gate. And there's a very broad road that leads to destruction. And you hear, you see that dynamic in our life when Christ and the Word of God is pressing upon our heart. And it's dealing with our sin. We have a decision to make. And everyone who's born again, you know what I'm talking about. You know you've been there. You know that you've had to deal with your sin first. And that's the only reason that you're in Christ today is because you have dealt with your sin according to the Word of God, according to the Spirit of God. It's often been said, and it's true, that The sign that leads to heaven and the sign that leads to hell point the same direction. And it's up to us to decipher that, to yield to what the Word of God says. Isn't it amazing that even with all that had been revealed to Israel, the people of God, that they did not believe. And you know, I don't know, that that Red Sea thing, that would have gotten me. You know, I mean, it would have. But we know that that's not what ultimately convinces a person. We know that from looking at the life, uh, the death of the other Lazarus. Dead four days. An obvious miracle. Nobody discounted that that was a miracle. But what do you find later in the scripture? In chapter 11 in John it says, well they just plot to kill him. And then in chapter 12, well, it's going to kill Lazarus too. Let's just do away with the whole event. 
Only the word of God can change a person's heart. We're born into the family of God through the Holy Spirit by believing his word. Isaiah says, they will say, well, who's believed our report? And the implied answer is no one, not many. And then it talks about Christ. He grew up before them in verse 2, him like a tender shoot. And like a root out of parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. And we've often said, and we talked about this in Sunday school not long ago, you pass Jesus on the street, he's like passing anybody else. He's probably a very Jewish looking person. But it's more than that. Those who knew his life, they just weren't impressed with his life. I mean, for heaven's sakes, he was crucified by the Romans. That was the end of his life. That confused the people because they understood, as we see in John chapter 7, they say, we've heard from the law that Christ lives forever. How can you sit here and talk about being lifted up again, using that same terminology that he used in chapter 3? They knew what that meant, to be lifted up, was to be lifted up on a cross. They didn't understand it. It didn't seem to fit. He didn't know enough people, enough important people. His life didn't stand out like they thought it should. But there's a group of people who were sent to arrest him one day. Temple policemen, if you will. And they couldn't arrest him. They came back and were giving an account of that. And what did they say? They said, well, we couldn't lay hands on him. Why? Never a man spoke like this man. You see, it's the words that came out of his mouth. It wasn't the physical Jesus. It was the Word of God, that same Word that literally spoke this world into existence. It was Him. And the power of the Word of God changes people. It changes people. He was despised and forsaken of men, in verse 3, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He doesn't sound like the kind of person you would want to follow. And like one from whom men literally, he says, hid their faces, he was despised and we did not esteem him. He did not meet the world's expectations. They would say things around the cross like, look, he saved others, let him save himself. If he be Christ, the chosen one, then let's see it. Let's see a miracle. And we know that wouldn't have done it for them. He was mocked as king. And they put the crown of thorns on him. They put the purple robe on him. They gave him the, the sticks, the reeds to look like some sort of scepter just so that they could mock him as king, to blindfold him, to come up behind him, to smack him in the head, and then ask him to prophesy as to who had hit him, to spit in his face, to hit him, and to take the mockings just to the nth degree. Can this be the Messiah? Let me read verse 4, 5, and 6 together. Surely our griefs he himself bore, listen, and our sorrows he carried, Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. 
All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. This is what we all have to believe when we're dealing with our sin and we're searching for that pathway so that we can be acceptable to God and all of a sudden we realize, well, there's nothing that I can do. There's nothing that I can bring to the table. There's nothing that I could ever say or do that would put me in a position to be acceptable of God. But wait a minute. Somebody has taken it, has taken my sin upon themselves. And it's no other than the person of Jesus Christ, the virgin-born Son of God. Verse 5 talks explicitly about what we refer to as the doctrine of expiation, where our sins are taken away. This is a picture, as it says, of penal substitutionary atonement. Even in the, the legal sense, someone paid the debt for us. It speaks of propitiation, the satisfaction, if you will, of a holy and righteous God. And this is what gets Christians today in trouble. Listen, church, there is no other way. There's no other way. This is what we preach. This isn't inclusive. This isn't, it doesn't demonstrate tolerance to other people. And the reason it doesn't is because it is the truth about what God has done to save every person who will come to Him in faith and repentance. This is our confession. We've all gone astray. All of us. Isaiah uses the example of sheep. Dependent, weak, defenseless, stupid sheep. And you know all those parallels. But Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that He, God, made Him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Christ stood there, as it says, not just in the Gospels, But in Isaiah, he stood there when condemned in silence. In verse 7, it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. And like a lamb lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before his hearers, so he did not open his mouth. A quote from Charles Simeon, where he says, Twice is his silence noticed in this text, Because it indicated a self-government which under the circumstances no created being could have exercised. Christ did what was prepared for Him to do, being obedient to the Father in every respect. Pilate would say, you don't speak to me. You're not going to talk to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And then these sobering words from Jesus, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Has the greater sin. I hope that today, and I'm going to cut the reading of the rest of Isaiah short, and just simply ask you, 
and give you some homework. If you'll go home and you'll read the rest of these verses to finish it out. Verses 8 through 12, just a few more. Get the whole picture there about what's being said as we look at Christ in the Old Testament and particularly what He's done for us so many hundreds of years ago, prophesied and fulfilled in every minute detail. But in closing, back to Luke 24 for just a moment. Just a moment. Give me just a couple of moments. It says in verse 28, they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he would go further. Christ had given them a lot, had he not? It's almost as if it's time for them to take the next step. Do you want to hear more? You want to hear more? I'll give you more, but it's going to be your decision. And so many of us are there today. And he stays with them. And in breaking of bread, they see who he is. He vanishes out of their sight. But listen to this wonderful verse. And this is the impact of the word of God. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road and while he was explaining the scripture to us? Were they not burning within us? You see, it's about the Word of God. Christ didn't appear and say, look, it's me. See my hands, see my feet. I'm resurrected. And that's not the effect that He wanted. He'd do that later, but not here. The emphasis is upon the Word of God. Believe what I'm telling you because of what the Old Testament has said about me. I am the fulfillment of that. As He said, I've, I've not come to destroy it, not to destroy the law. I've come to fulfill it. And that's what I am. And later He would say, These words, he would say, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Israel. Not so much about the persona of the resurrected Christ, but about the proclamation, the fulfillment of Scripture. So fourthly, we have this. What is your response today? There must be a response to the truth of Scripture. The Bible tells us that all fall short of God's glory, It tells us that everyone, every person who's ever been born has turned aside together. He says, we've become corrupt. No one does good, not one. The people in here who are born again are no better than anyone else. We still have the same sin nature, but God has overcome us through His Spirit. He's giving us a new nature. We were all born with the same one. He's given us a new one, and He receives the honor and glory for that. Christ would say, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance from Luke chapter 5. And if you don't think you're a sinner, then this word goes right over your head. Because He's come to save those who see themselves as sinners. The writer of Hebrews says, today if you hear His voice, today if you hear His voice, don't 
harden your heart. Because you, don't, you won't always hear it like that. Not once, but twice in chapter 3, and then again in chapter 4. If you hear his voice today, don't harden your heart. Matthew 11, he says, and we have this picture of Christ standing with his arms open. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. And he's talking about the burden of our sin. I pray that you'll do that today if you're here and the Word of God has dealt with you. I pray that it has. I pray that you would not go another day. And in our fellowship here, we always make an appeal that if you want to know more and you want somebody to pray with you and to share with you about what I've shared this morning from God, about our Messiah and what He has done, and the price that He paid that only He could pay, then you can find me or Shane or any of these other elders that you know. Many of our Sunday school teachers, all of our Sunday school teachers, most of our church, they'd be happy to sit and pray with you and to show you what Christ has done for us. I pray that you'll do that today. Pray with me before Darby comes. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love for us. We would simply ask today, Lord, that you would receive all honor and glory for what's brought about by the preaching and teaching of your word. We love you and we thank you for your marvelous grace. And we pray, Lord, that that extension of grace would continue in this place and that souls would be saved and we would be turned toward you in a greater way in all that we think, do, and say. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.